0: Mr. Xavier Reese and the incredible power of God's love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear
1: because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect or mature in love. The love of God keeps me stable. I look to the cross and I realize how much He loves me when I see His arms stretched out. It stabilizes my life. The cross is the only thing that stabilizes me. As I look to His love,
0: Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, senior pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Scripture tells us, For we walk by faith, not by sight. But what happens when we walk by sight and not by faith? That's the lesson Pastor Xavier explores as he continues to examine the precarious life of Jacob. Let's join him in the book of Genesis for today's study. Genesis
1: 32, we're going to look at verse 1 through 32. And the message entitled, Are You Still Trusting Yourself? Bad habits are very hard to break. Some of them can be annoying, unhealthy, and just plain disgusting. But the habit that is ever present and the most detrimental to the believer is trusting in himself. To depend on God and not on oneself is supernatural. Jacob, as you know, is now returning home from his vacation of 20 years through the University of Uncle Laban. God has protected him from Uncle Laban just recently, but he still doesn't get it. His mind is racing, thinking how he is going to make amends with Esau. He's a control freak with modern-day terminology. And so, what we want to do is look at the return of Jacob here to Canaan, which is characterized by the following three things. First, the fearful apprehension of Jacob, verse 1 through 8. Secondly, the fleshly manipulation of Jacob, in verse 9 through 20. And then, thirdly, the final comprehension of Jacob, in verse 21 through 32. Notice verse 1 and 2. The angelic visitation from God was for the sake of Jacob. Jacob, having departed from Laban, went on his way, and the angels of God met him in verse 1. The angelic escort here was a reminder to Jacob of God's divine protection as he returned to the promised land in order to ease his fear. God knows where our heart's at all the time. He knows what's going through there. We may look cool and calm before people, but God says, you're freaking out, man. The angelic escort, without any doubt, encouraged and reassured Jacob of God's faithfulness again, of his promise at Bethel at at the same time in Haran, told him to leave. Remember at Bethel, he saw the angels descending and ascending on the ladder. Here now, angels, he's coming back. It's like bookends. God's protection. Jacob responded, notice in verse 2, very confidently knowing God was present. He said, this is God's camp. Now, 20 years earlier at Bethel, he didn't know this. He said in 28, 16, surely the Lord Yahweh is in this place, and I did not know it. God spoke to him for the first time. Now, he memorialized the camp, and he called the name of the place Mahayim, meaning two camps. Some believe it refers to two armies of angels. Others believe it is the army of angels and the host of Jacob here. I think that's probably the more correct one. Now, notice the human preparation of Jacob comes next in verse 3 through 5 of sending messengers to Esau, revealing that he was trusting himself more than God. Now, you have to put this in the backdrop of what we've just looked at. God just protected them from Laban. He just let them see some angels. And, and it's like, like none of this has happened. In verse 3, Jacob commissions messengers to announce his coming to Esau in an attempt to appease him, by the way. The word messenger, uh, malak, is the same word that is used for angels in verse 1. The context always determines whether those messengers are angelic or human. Okay, But it's the very same word for messenger. Jacob is completely ignoring. He's ignoring the very fact of the angels, what God has told him about returning, everything. And often that is the case if we're not careful. We get so distracted what's going on, we forget all the promise of God, what God's done, everything else, and we're just going down the road our way. Notice in verse 3 that the residence of Esau is given to us, it was sincere, the city of Petra. The country of Edom is identified here, and it identifies the geographical location of the descendants of Esau, meaning red. You remember that when he um, exchanged his birthright, sold it to Jacob in Genesis twenty-five thirty, he sold it for a pot of lentils or pottage, red, and that's what Edom means, red. Now, the people of Edom were called Edomians, and Herod is the last Edomian in Scripture, and the Edomites are always a type of the flesh. Um, everything that stands against God. It will be the dwelling place, by the way, of Israel under the persecution of the Antichrist, Isaiah 16, and Revelation tells us that very, very clearly. Now, notice that in verse 4, Jacob dictated the exact words. He is in control. He wants to oversee everything. He attempts to present himself as Esau's servant. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to, listen, my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. Jacob was groveling out of fear, not humility. He is still Jacob, the con artist and trickster, trying to work Esau. Have you ever been somewhere, you buy a car or go somewhere else, you walk in a store and, and, you know, it's fine when they're, they're sensitive and, you know, they're very courteous, but when they overdo it, you kind of say, you know, lighten up, Turbo. I mean, you're just overdone. This is what's going on, okay? Verse 5, he attempted to find acceptance by the presence. The amount hopefully would make... Um, Esau see that Jacob was not coming back to claim any inheritance. I have oxen, uh, donkeys, flocks, and males and female servants. The intent of the present was not hidden. Notice in verse 5. He says, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. He's working on, but he, he's also sharing some truth here. The stealing of the birthright was still an issue between both of them, wasn't it? And he's hoping that he can cool off Esau's anger. It's been 20 years, but you know, he still sees some smoke coming out of there. The horrible news that returned to Jacob by the messengers made him more fearful. Verse 6 and 8. You know, it seemed like an eternity waiting. You can imagine the stress, the anxiety of Jacob. The report was not what he wanted it to be. In his mind, when he heard these words, he was dead. We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. Kind of a, 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 a smile, frown, sort of, and, and the thing is good. And all of a sudden, and 400 men are with him. Oh, bummer. <laughs> in his reflection, he remembered Esau's words that he would kill him once his dad died in Genesis twenty-seven forty-one. It was like a, like Yesterday. In his own cleverness, he was depending on himself, not God. Been there? Are you there right now? The response of Jacob was fear and decisive action in verse 7 and 8. How can that be? Because he is a pro at this. (laughs) This is where Jacob lives. His heart dropped. Verse 7. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He was filled with dread, literally, and was filled with greater anxiety. You see, he resorted then to his alternate plan. Jacobs always have a plan, B, C, D, E, F. Always. He divided the camp, verse 7. He divided the people that were with him, and the flocks, and the herds, and the camels, into two companies, interesting, two camps, two companies now, (laughs) Parallel. Naaman, the camp that he named, he had already cut his losses. Look at verse 8. He was expecting Esau coming to fight, and he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, he was looking to run. Listen, then the other company, which is left, will escape. He's got it figured out. (laughs) A peasant was driving into a European city when an aged woman stopped him to see if he could give her a ride. As she got in the car, she introduced herself as um, the plague cholera. The man became alarmed, but she assured him that only 10 people would die in the city. And then she handed him a dagger and said, If more than 10 people die, you can thrust me with this dagger. As they arrived at the city, a hundred people had already died. The man quickly grabbed the dagger, ready to thrust her through. As her hand went up and says, "Wait! I killed only ten. Fear killed the rest." There are so many things that can um, grip us with fear, particularly in the days in which we are living in today. The fear of our children's safety. Schools are one of the most dangerous places. Thousands of kids don't go to school every day just because they're afraid of getting beat up, being accosted, or anything else in school today. Going to the mall, just walking down the street is dangerous. We can really get freaked out if we allow it. The fear of um, making a living today in the cutthroat job market Is um, a reality. The fear of everything we eat, drink, and breathe, the professionals tell us. In past generations, they slept under air conditioners that blew out asbestos. They painted with lead paint, and and they lived to be 80 and 90. Now we try to eat all that we're supposed to write, and we exercise, and we die young because we're worried of what we're going to die about. (laughs) Hmm. Fear cripples a person. Listen to Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord Yahweh shall be safe. Fear takes away joy and a stable mind. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, stable, clear. Fear takes our peace away and distracts us from the love of God. Listen to 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect or mature in love. The love of God keeps me stable. I look to the cross and I realize how much he loves me when I see his arms stretched out. It it stabilizes my life. The cross is the only thing that stabilizes me. As I look to his love, now it is a legitimate time for each of us to use common sense and do whatever is needed in preparation of the circumstance and situation, but not after God has spoken to us very specifically. You do all that you can to save your marriage as a loving mate. But if after a time the Lord tells you to just pray, And rest in him, then it would be trusting yourself if you continue in your own desperation and cleverness to win your mate over. It's a personal relationship. You know what? There's no patterns in Christianity, it's not an automatic transmission, it's a stick, man. How God deals with me is not the way he'll deal with you. What he allows me to do in a situation is not what you should be doing in yours. It's personal. When God has ministered to you clearly to stop trying to convince your daughter or your son to Christ. And he tells you just pray and rest in me. But you continue manipulating and working them to convince them and You drive them further away at times. When God has assured you that he has gone before you in family matters and situations and that he's going to take care of it. But when you're there, it doesn't seem to work out the way you think it should. So you start explaining and and informing and, and you make things worse because you haven't rested in what God has told you. Again, all of this is after you've done and He's spoken to you. We're not ignoring common sense and things, okay? So let's leave it in the context. Listen to um, Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord Yahweh with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord Yahweh and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Whoa. You know anything about that? Everyone in this auditorium should know the joy of this type of victory. And everyone in this room should know the agony of defeat (laughs) when we don't trust him. Now, hopefully we, we catch on. And we get tired of that defeat It might be the horrible news of something that we hope we never hear, the fact that you have cancer, the fact that your son or daughter has been killed, the fact that one of your grandchildren are born with deformities or difficulties. Reality, where we live. Joe put it this way, and it's not flowery words. It's not poetical Decoration. Job 121 says, Job speaking, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord Yahweh gave and the Lord Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord Yahweh. His sons, his daughters, everything he has. God, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job 1315. Oh, Lord, I want to be that. Help me learn my lessons. The fearful apprehension of Jacob only intensified by trusting in himself. Notice next we have the fleshly manipulation of Jacob. He's not through yet. Verse 9 through 20. In verse 9 through 12, Jacob um, prayed to God as a last resort. Don't miss that. <laughs> He's in trouble. His plan has failed. His personal trust is given to us in verse 9. He acknowledges his heritage. Then Jacob said, oh, God of my father, Abraham, uh, and God of my father, Isaac. So he addresses God very personal and relational by God of my father. That's good. That's important. That's how we have access. Then he acknowledges God's will to return. In verse 9, the Lord Yahweh has said to me, return to your country and to your family. So he says, Lord, I'm acting on your accord, but he's not being totally truthful here, right? Because he still wants to be in control, right? And a lot of us are like that, and all of us at one time or another are. We 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 just we're very partial in the information, we're very lopsided. He acknowledges God's care for him, and I will deal with you well with you. So, God, you promised me all this, but he's not mentioning what what he's doing out of disobedience, right? He's laying the trip on God, right? And so we have his personal humility in verse 10. He's in trouble. In verse 10, he acknowledges his unworthiness. I am not worthy of the least of all your mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. He knew he was a deceiver. He's being deceptive right now in prayer. He acknowledges his increase by God. For I crossed over Jordan with my staff. That's all he had. Now I've become two companies. He was penniless. Now he's rich. Then comes his personal plea in verse 11. He cried out to be rescued. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. This is the climax of the prayer. He's being truthful here. Help this boy. And I'm sure that in the mind of God, he recalled the first murder of brother against brother, Cain and Abel. Wow. He confessed his concern in verse 11 there. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. He did not hide it from God. He sees it all. Then he have his personal promise in verse 12. He reminded Yahweh of his word of protection. For you said, I will surely treat you well. God told him that at Bethel and Haran. He reminded Yahweh of his word of propagation. And make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Again, the word of Bethel. Genesis 28, 14. It has been noted that this is the longest prayer in Genesis. It is a prayer of help (laughs) by Jacob. Now, he gets done praying. In verse 13 through 20, Jacob resorted to his practice of depending on himself after his prayer. Now, I know none of you do that. So, you might just take notes for someone else. Verse 13 through 15, Jacob the schemer could not leave it in the Lord's hands. Sound familiar? He rested that night, so he lodged there the same night. If this would be the last thing stated, then we could conclude that he rested in God. But the narrative goes on. He returned to his own resources. Verse 13 at the end there, he says, and took what came... To his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. Even after prayer, Jacob depends on his own devices the flesh. The last thing to die, listen, is flesh. It will do anything and everything to survive. He gathers 580 animals and sends them to Esau and broke them up into five herds, 14 through 15. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 220 there. 200 ewe lambs and 20 rams, 220 more. 30 milk cows and their colts, so that's 60. 40 cows and 10, that's 50. And 20 female donkeys and 10, that's 50. A total of 580. That's pretty sizable. And that's just a gift. God had blessed him. Jacob puts into effect his plan then in verse 16 through 20. In 16, he gave the particular method. He Wants to be in control. This is his plan. There were several servants involved. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, plural. And in 16 still, there were several droves, every drove by itself. There were to be certain intervals in verse 16 also. And said to his servant, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. So one would come up and greet him. And then in another time, another one would come up. So he kept wearing them down. This guy's good, isn't he? Verse 17 through 20. He gave the particular message to be communicated. Verse 17 and 18. To the first messengers, he presented himself as Esau's humble servant, which is a lie. And he told them, and he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servants, Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. To the others, in verse 19 and 20, he presented himself as being horribly afraid of Esau. Kind of mixed messages. Listen. Verse 19, so he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the droves, saying, in this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also saying, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterwards I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. The word for appease is the word kephar, which we get our word cover from, or atonement. Jacob knew he had done him wrong because he didn't wait upon God to give him the inheritance the way God would do it. He tried to do it himself, and it got him in trouble. 20 years. Now he's coming back. He knows he's in hot water. But God's told him to go back, but he can't trust God because he's made such a mess of his life. Literally, lift up my face in favor. Kind of reminds you of the old Errol Finn movies of Musketeers and everything, and the guys before the king or something, and his head bowed, and when he received mercy or grace, they would lift his countenance. That's what it means, to lift my face.
0: Your pardon. Pastor Xavier Reese and the comfort and power of forgiveness. And you can pick up a copy of today's lesson on faith. Are you still trusting yourself? They're available on CD for just $4. Be sure and pass a copy of this lesson on to a friend or loved one. The title to ask for once again is, Are you still trusting yourself? Or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for remembering to tell us the call letters of this station when you get in touch. Are you tired of making a mess of things? Find out why trusting God is a better option. That's right here on the next edition of Simple Truths with Bible study teacher, Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California